We're going to continue our series that we've been uh, going through for the last several uh, few weeks uh, in talking about the church. So far, what we've seen, we, we began by just talking about what is the church. We looked at um, how the church is created by God, is appointed by God, and then what the church is called to do. After that, we talked about who the church is. We talked about the elements of church membership, about the local church. Last week, we talked about what protects the church. And in talking about what protects the church, we talked about the role of the whole congregation in both the discipleship of one another and discipling one another's, um, in being discipled by one another, but also in specifically when we even talk about issues of sin in the process of discipline. All of those things are things that we've looked at so far, and this morning we're going to be talking about the role of pastors, who leads the church. The thing is, though, about pastors is that since I've become a pastor, it's been interesting to have different interactions and what people's expectations are if you're a pastor. Whenever I have to do something that's more in the pastor vein, uh, whether it's someone from the community asking for me to uh, perform a funeral or do something like that, it's always interesting talking to people, and um, I'll get called father sometimes. I'll be called reverend. They'll be asking me about my parish. Um, all these different things and expectations. The other one that's interesting, though, is when I do, my house is on the corner of a busy road, and it just attracts people somehow. Because on average, if I'm doing work outside, it's at least every other time someone's going to pull into my driveway to talk. Which is great. I don't mind. But I'll be doing work outside. I'll be doing firewood. Someone's going to pull in. They're going to want to ask about the bees that I keep, about the chickens, about the firewood, about my furnace. And it's great. And I've had different times where I've brought them over and I'm like oh, okay let's look at everything that how this works because they're interested in doing it and at some point in the conversation this happened yesterday in fact they'll ask so what do you do and I'll be like I'm a pastor really huh I don't know what that really is supposed to mean if it's that surprising to them that I'm in that capacity but whatever it is it's surprising to them that I'm in that role uh there was a story I'm the Hibbards are sitting in the back that one time we went to this banquet. It was a care net banquet uh, for uh, crisis pregnancies. Um, and at one point they asked all of the pastors to stand up at this banquet to, just to recognize. I stood up and it was a flyby comment. This lady, older lady, walked past me. I had just stood up and she just says, what are you, like 12? And just kept walking by. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't even have a way of responding. I'm like, I guess. I mean, I sat down, and they're like, what did she say? I said it to Hannah. Hannah started taking out her earrings. Where is she? Where is she? <laughs> Talking to Billy about it, uh, when Billy told his family that he was looking to go into ministry, they're like, so, so you're not going to have any kids anymore then, right? No, no, it's not that kind of, of clergy. No, I'm still allowed to get married and, and have kids there's a lot of confusion when it comes to the role of pastors within the church. Uh, last year, Billy and I went to an ecumenical dinner just with all of uh, multiple clergy in the area, and 
it was shocking for me because I think in some ways Billy and I were the only actual pastors there. Half of the people were clergy in places that weren't actually churches. The other half were not actually qualified for the roles that they held. But we aren't above that. That's not just something external that people struggle with. That's something that we struggle with too. When it comes to what people think pastors do, most of it's based on what they've seen done. And that makes sense. If you think of your parenting, most of what you think parenting is, is based off of what you've seen done in the past. And part of that can be a good thing, except the problem is, in both the role of pastors and parents, is that we're looking at sinners who are holding those roles. And if all we do is look at those people to understand what it is that they're meant to do, we're going to miss out. What we need to do is to go back to the source. What does God say about these things? When it comes to pastors, much of the confusion lies in these four areas. Who a pastor is, what a pastor does, how the pastorate is structured, and then the relationship between a pastor and the congregation. So in light of the confusion, we need some clarification. We need to address these areas so that we can move forward as a body according to what God's word says. Now, uh, when I was in college, one of the things that would happen is that there was oftentimes uh, when you're living in a dorm, you've got a bunch of single guys, a bunch of single gals, and every once in a while there was this confusion of what the status of a relationship was. They didn't really know what, what this relationship was. Well, I, I kind of like them. They, they kind of like me, but we really don't know where things are. And so what people would say is you need to have a DTR. Who knows what a DTR stands for? What is it? Define the relationship. They, they needed to have it defined. But the problem is, when you're trying to define something, if you don't know what the role is, if you don't know what the responsibilities in the relationship are going to be, if you're not sure what the structure is going to look like, you're going to have a really hard time defining what the relationship should look like. This morning, we're going to do a DTR. We're going we're to acknowledge that there's some confusion, and we're going to try to clarify that by going through these different four categories that are in your handout to really determine what should the pastorate look like. My goal is for us to seek scripture and understand what it says regarding pastors. Now you might think it's strange to preach about pastors when it feels like the whole room, it really only applies to two of us. And so for that reason, Billy's going to pull up a chair right here in the front. The rest of you are dismissed and it's just, no, we're not going to do that. Some of you got too excited about that. But if you think of different relationships, how would relationships be impacted if you didn't know the role of each person in the relationship? How would the relationship be impacted if you didn't know the responsibilities of people within the relationship? How would the relationship be impacted if you didn't know the structure of the relationship? You can think of of how that would fall apart if we don't know those things. And so that's why we're not preaching this just for Billy and myself. This is for the congregation. 
The other reason, though, to preach it is because it is the role of the church to protect the role of the pastor. It's the congregation that recognizes and appoints pastors. And if the congregation doesn't know what that looks like, they're going to bring the wrong people in. Paul warns Timothy, and he says to Timothy, in the last days, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who tickle their ears, who tell them the things that they want to hear. In Galatians, Paul says, why have you turned away from the gospel that I proclaim to you and you've sought a different gospel? And so it is important for the congregation to know this is what it means to be a pastor. This is what it looks like. These are the responsibilities so that then we can establish the right relationship. So let's get started. The first DTR we are going to do is define the role of elders. In defining the role, we're going to look at a statement regarding elders and then go through it phrase by phrase. Here's the statement, and it's in your handout. Elders, pastors, overseers are qualified men who are recognized and appointed to serve as under-shepherds of Christ within the local church to lead the flock according to God's word. Each part of this statement is something we could spend a significant amount of time on. We're not going to do that. We're just going to go through piece by piece so that we can keep going on. But all of these are parts of what the role, the defining the role of elders should be. So let's go piece by piece. The first part, elders, pastors, overseers. In the Bible, we have uh, three different terms used to describe the position or office of elder. Or pastors. In the Bible, you aren't going to find the word pastor. Instead, it uses the word shepherd. The reason we use the word pastor is pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. In Portuguese, it's a lot easier because in Portuguese, it's pastor de ovelhas is pastor of sheep. Pastor de igreja is pastor of the church. It's much easier in that sense. But within the church, within the Bible, what we have is just the word shepherd. So when I'm talking about pastor, you can think of that as synonymous with the term in the Bible as shepherd. But these three terms, elders, pastors, or shepherds, overseers, are each used to describe this one role. In Acts 20, we see all three being used at the same time. In verse 17 of chapter uh, 20, it says this. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Paul has called the elders of the church in Ephesus. Then in verse 28, while he's still talking to the same people, it says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So here we see elders in verse 17. Then in verse 28, we see overseers. But we also have the term shepherd here. Um, this is just something that happens very rarely. But on occasion, there's a, an unfortunate way in which a, a, a different translation chooses to translate the original. The ESV uses and says the word to care for the church of God. But the word there for to care is the word shepherd. 
It's the same word that is used in other parts when it's talking about pastors as shepherds. I prefer how the NASB puts it when it says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So first thing that I want us to see is that all three of these terms, when we come across them in the Bible, all three of these describe the same position. Now, to be clear, though, not every time you see those terms is it meaning it's talking about the same position. There are, those three terms were terms before the church. Uh, we've seen this example when we've talked about the gospel. The gospel was a word already before, and it was just good news. We've seen that with the church. The word for church in the, in the Bible is assembly, and then it became known as the church. The same thing for the positions in elder, overseers, and shepherds. Those were terms that already existed, but then God used them because they had a significance in describing this role within the church. So, we have elders, pastors, overseers, and then the next part of the statement are qualified men. God does not just give us the position, he gives us the requirements. The most important qualification of an elder, of a pastor, of an overseer is that they are sheep. My most important role here in our church is not as a shepherd, but as a sheep. There may be a day in which God calls me to no longer be a shepherd. There will never be a day in which God no longer calls me to be his sheep. The first qualification of an elder is that they themselves are part of the flock. When we were going through the Gospel of John, we, we looked at John 10 and we saw that Christ is the good shepherd and it is through Christ that people become sheep. It's the element of when you are a sheep of the shepherd, when you are one of his lambs, that means that you are in his fold. You are part of his flock. You are a believer. That happens when we place our faith in Christ alone, who saved us by grace alone. It's the work that Christ accomplished when he died on the cross, when he rose again, when he offers for us, when he calls us to be his own. I'm a sheep because of the work of Christ. Christ died for my sins, he rose again. I'm a sheep because God called me to be his child, and I responded by repenting and placing my faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Those two things, those things, the element of me being a sheep never goes away. I'm a shepherd because God called me and the church appointed me. But that could go away. Being a sheep, though, doesn't. Now, within Scripture, though, we have two main passages regarding the qualifications of elders. And, and I'm going to read through them. We're not going to go through every single qualification, but here's what I want you to do. As I read through them, and if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to 1 Timothy 3, Chapter, uh, chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3. And as I'm reading through these, here's what I want you to do. Put a, make a list in your mind. You don't have to write it, write it down, but make a list in your mind of the different character elements versus skill elements. 
How many things do you see that these are things in which God says this is the quality, this is the character of an elder versus how many things these are the, uh, the skills that he must have? So I'm going to read it first in 1 Timothy 3, then we'll go to Titus 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, or faithful to his wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, well, household how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Next, turn to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is what it says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Again, we're not going to go through every single one of these qualifications. Back when we did the series through Titus, we went through that list item by item. But, but here's what I want to point out. As you were listening to the list, how many of the qualities, how many of the qualifications were character versus how many of them were competency? The vast majority were character. In the whole list, the only thing that's a skill that's given is that he must be able to teach. That he must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Now, some people see the managing the household also as a skill. But really, when you talk about being a, a father, all of those, those are also qualities. Those are spiritual qualities. And so the skill that is not expected of everyone, meaning every single person in our church is not required, the only skill in the list is able to teach. Every other element of this list of qualifications is found in other places in Scripture given to the congregation. This is not something that I am called to that the rest of the people are not. All of these things should describe us. What's the implication for having a list that is so deep on character and not so long in skills? It's that character trumps competency. This is where God's great wisdom is evident. Think through the churches that you have heard about. What has heard, hurt the church more? High character and low competency or high competency and low character 
Which of those two categories, which one of those has hurt the church more? Every couple of months we hear something on the news, something comes out where a a pastor with incredible competency, a pastor who can preach like no one else, a pastor who has skills in oversight, a pastor who can structure, who can cast vision, who can do all of these amazing things, who has gathered around himself a massive flock. But his character is flawed. And it destroys the testimony of the church. How often do we see that? Every few months. I'm sure that many of you can think back to different pastors growing up who maybe didn't have the greatest competency. Maybe they weren't the greatest preachers. Maybe they didn't have the greatest skills in all the things that pastors do. But how many of you can think of a pastor who impacted your life in which you cannot remember a single sermon they ever preached, but they had a profound impact on your life, not because of their competency, but because of their character? All the time. Does that mean that competency does not matter? No. Paul tells Timothy, fan into flame the gift that you've been given. Develop that. Labor. Toil over this. Preach the word. Be ready. Should we strive to be better with things of competency? Sure. Should we take classes? Should we consider higher education? Absolutely. We should be striving after those things. Uh, last, last week, uh, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I went through a course with, with Pastor Billy, with some other people from our church, going about how do we study the word of God? How do we come, become better at this? But character trumps competency. That's the thing that we must look for. We don't look for someone who can do a great job at these things. We want to see someone who is godly first and foremost. Why? Why is there such a heavy emphasis on character? Here's two reasons. One, because of God's character. God is holy. God is set apart. The ones he calls then should also be holy. Are we going to be holy like him? No. But are we called to be above reproach? That there's not something that the world or people can grasp onto and say, you're unqualified because of this thing. The other reason is because of God's competency. The fear, if we are looking for, for our skills, if we're looking to prioritize human competency, it means that we are seeking human results. If we're thinking that the way that our church is going to grow is based off of how well I preach, then the whole hope is what I'm doing in my power. But we don't work in, God, in my power. Paul in, in Colossians 1 verses 28 and 29 says, I strive through all the power, power that he supplies, all of his energy. And so we don't wor worry about human competency so much as we worry about God who is able to make them competent. Again, it is a skill, it is a requirement that they be able to teach. But what we truly seek is the, the character of First and foremost, elders must be qualified. God gives the position. He also gives the requirements. Going on, elders are qualified men recognized and appointed. Just because you are qualified does not make you an elder. You must be recognized and appointed. 
recognized because the church knew who its elders and pastors were. They recognized them. James 5.14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. They knew who they were. Hebrews 13.7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. How are you going to imitate their faith if you don't know who they are, if you can't recognize them? Verse 17 of Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Elders are people who are recognized in the church, but not only recognized, they are also appointed. In Acts 14, verse 23, it says this, this is, uh, Paul was doing this, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Titus 1.5, in which uh, Paul is talking to Titus, he says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It's not just a matter of, hey, just recognize the people who are already there and just as long as you recognize them because they're already elders, no. Paul tells him to appoint them. Now, one of the issues for us is in both of those circumstances, it was an apostolic appointment. It was either the apostle Paul himself or someone that Paul had given that responsibility to do that. The issue for us is that we don't still have an apostolic appointment. We don't have an apostle now to do that for us. So in, that, in, when, in the lack of having the apostles, what we do is we look to the church. In Matthew 16, Paul, uh, God, uh, Christ gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter to build up the church. In Matthew 18, he gives those same keys to the church. And so, in, in, as we, are, we do not have the apostolic succession, although there are multiple denominations that believe that that still does exist, we look to the church to appoint. This is what happened for me. I believe that God put on my heart to be a pastor when I was a teenager. But that was not confirmed until this church called me, recognized me, and appointed me to that role. Billy was a pastor in Ohio, and then he had a time in which he was not a pastor or elder, not because of sin or anything, because he moved. And then he became our elder, became one of our pastors when we called him, we recognized him, and we appointed him to that role. So they are qualified men, recognized and appointed for what? To serve as under-shepherds of Christ. 1 Peter 5 says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd that we see in 1 Peter 5 is Christ. We read earlier, Betsy read for us um, Ezekiel 34, and in Ezekiel 34, God promises that he will put a shepherd over, over his flock. And that shepherd will be his servant, David. It's talking about 
Christ. In John 10, when we went through that passage, we saw the fulfillment of that promise when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Later in verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and there are those who are not in this fold that I will go out and bring them in, and they will hear my voice, and they will know who I am. We are called to serve, but we do so under Christ. He is the true shepherd of the flock. When we ask the question, who leads the church? Ultimately, it's Christ. Christ leads the church. So pastors serve as under-shepherds of Christ. Where? Within the local church. 1 Peter 5.2 also says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I'm not the leader of all churches. I am called to lead in this church. And what am I called to? To lead the flock. What he also says in 1 Peter 5, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples in the flock. But the element there is to lead them. All of this is according to God's word. It's his position. He gets to tell me how to do it. So now that we've defined the role, let's detail the responsibilities of the elders. Shepherds follow the shepherd. That is the first responsibility of the shepherd. The first responsibility of any shepherd is to follow the shepherd. I don't get to choose where to lead the flock. This is what Paul says in Corinthians. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. We follow his example. Jesus is the best example of the pastor. Whenever we're considering what does it look like to be a pastor, we follow Jesus. I'm just going to share a, a few, uh, some, of the some of the responsibilities of the pastor because we have a lot still to get through. And so I'm just going to go through these very quickly. Shepherds are called to feed the flock. In Ezekiel 34, it says the, 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 the chastisement of those shepherds is because they were not feeding the flock. Shepherds are called to do that. When Christ talks to Peter at the end in John 21, he says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Shepherds feed the flock. Shepherds help the flock to grow. In Ephesians 4, it says that he gives the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for building up the body, for the body to grow. Shepherds lead the flock. 1 Peter 5, 2, what we already saw, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Shepherds preach the word to the flock. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Shepherds plead for the flock. James 5, is anyone sick? Let him pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Shepherds protect the flock. In Acts 20, where Paul is talking to the elders of Ephesus, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's his body. It's his flock. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We must protect the flock from those things. Shepherds pursue the flock. In Luke, we see the parable of the shepherd who goes after the one sheep who has gone away. 
As pastors, we do that with shepherds who are limping because they're suffering in different ways. We do that for shepherds who are wandering, maybe because of sin, maybe because of abandonment. We do that for shepherds who are fighting with sheep that are biting. We do that with sheep who are fighting. We pursue the sheep. Shepherds love the flock. You can't be a shepherd if you don't love the flock. Instead, you will be a shepherd as a hired hand. That's in John 10. What we have is Christ describes himself as the good shepherd, and then he talks about those who are not shepherds. They're just hired hands. They won't stay when the wolves come. They don't love the flock. They don't care about the flock. A shepherd is to follow Christ's example and love the flock. We don't do it under compulsion or for deceitful gain, but we do it eagerly. Shepherds spend time with the flock. Shepherds are meant to smell like sheep because they are called to be with the sheep. They are one of the sheep. 1 Peter 5.3 calls the elders to be examples to the sheep. How will they be examples? How will people imitate the life of their shepherds if they can never see the shepherds? How will the shepherds tend to their flock if they don't know anything about the flock. All of those are different responsibilities that shepherds are called to. That's a long list. And that's not everything. And quite frankly, it's a job description that's beyond me. It's beyond Billy and I. Thankfully, we have the shepherd who is Christ, who does it perfectly. And yet, at the same time, God calls us to be under shepherds and to accomplish the same things. But I think that God gives a protection, an aid for pastors who don't have all the skills necessary. A while back, we've been talking about this. We talked about this in business meeting of really that I see that the Bible teaches and presents a, a plurality of pastors. It's not meant to just be one. It's meant to be a group of them. And I'm going to just demonstrate the reasons now for, for a plurality of elders. Again, we're going to do this briefly. The, the first reason, though, is just a biblical reason. It's that the Bible speaks of the office of pastors, elders, and overseers in the plural. I'm just going to read some of these verses for you, and I just want you to observe what, what's happening in them. Acts 14, verse 23 says this, And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular. Acts 20, 17, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. Philippians 1.1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, plural, and deacons, plural. 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching. In that passage, we're seeing that there is some type of difference. There are some different um, ways in which the elders will function with the, within the body and let those who do this part well, they are considered worthy of double honor. 1 Timothy 5.19, in matters of sin, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It doesn't say the elder, it's an elder. 
Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. Elders, plural, town, singular. James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Over and over and over again, it's presenting this as more than one. The only time in which we really see it as singular is when John, uh, the Apostle John in, in the, uh, his three epistles writes and says, John the Elder. But that's because he's only talking about himself. Every other time we see this in the plural. One of the things, though, that's interesting is in having discussions, and, and I understand that this is not something that we see, and sometimes we see this as uh, maybe that we're changing denomination, we're becoming more Presbyterian or something. That's not the case. We're just trying to do what the Bible says. And, and one of the interesting elements is when we talk about this stuff, I've never had anyone push against the plurality of deacons. When we talk about deacons, people are like, yeah, of course, it's going to be more than just one, mostly because in Acts 6, and we're going to get to this next week, it talks about that they picked seven for that. But the, fall, the, the total arguments for deacons, there's very few parts that talk about deacons, and we just assume it's going to be plural. But when there's talking about deacons, there's a lot more times that it talks about singular deacons than it does in plural. I'm not saying that I don't think that the, there should be a plural de, uh, plurality of deacons. There should be. But the evidence is there. We see the few places, and we're like, yeah, this should be plural. When it comes to elders, there's more evidence it's every time it talks about them. And so the, for a biblical reason, I think we should move that way. But what about the practical reason? The first practical reason is what I'm going to call the Jethro principle. And this is in Exodus 18. Moses is sitting down to judge the people. And this is what it says. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And listen to Moses' description. See if it sounds anything like a pastor. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them, know, make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, after that description of all the things that he's doing, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will, with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Billy wanted me to call it the what you are doing is not good principle, which I guess if we did the acronym, it would be the wyading. What you are doing is not good. We should write that down. Wyading principle. It's too heavy for you. It's too much. He then gives him a system and he's like, look, you need to bring other people alongside to do this. And this is a principle that we see in every area of the Christian life. What parts of the Christian life do you see God calling you to say, hey, do this as an individual, don't do, do it with anyone else? We don't see that in any area. Are there individual responsibilities? Of course, but we always see the body coming alongside and helping. Why would we make the pastorate unique in saying, well, everything else happens together, but the pastorate needs to be done alone? The practical reasons is that it's a protection from the negative things. It's accountability. 
in personal matters of sin and character flaws. This is what Paul says in, in Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. From among you will rise up people who will take them away. Pay clear, careful attention to yourselves. This is what Billy helps me do. When Billy shepherds me, when Billy confronts me, it also helps in sensitive matters, sensitive matters of discipline. We talked about that last week. That's a hard area, and it becomes all the more difficult when it is one pastor standing up and saying, I think they're wrong, and the person saying, no, they're not. I'm not. I could get that wrong. I could just get frustrated and be like, I'm so done with this, I want to discipline them. But having a plurality of pastors protects you in that. It protects you in matters of counseling. It protects you in matters of discipline. It protects you in, in the matters of the facts of life that pastors die. And when pastors die, you don't want to leave the flock without an under-shepherd. A plurality of pastors helps in that. It also helps in the promotion of the positive. It helps with giftedness and experience. And experience. Billy is an immensely gifted individual. He doesn't have all the gifts. I don't have all the gifts. Both of us together don't have all the gifts. Bringing alongside other people expands that element in which we have more areas where we can lean on the way that God has uniquely gifted different individuals. Helps in vision and in counseling. It helps in the care of the flock. One of the things that we have, I have felt for a time now that I desperately want to improve on is in my actual shepherding of individual sheep. We have this. We meet and do things like this. But other than that, the most experience, the most interaction I have with sheep is in times of crisis. Because there's enough crises that I have to then spend time with them in that, but then I don't have time to just spend time with the sheep. Now, that's not a problem. A shepherd needs to be there in times of crisis. But we also want the shepherd to be there preparing to avoid the crisis. That discipleship that we talked about last week, that happens better when there's more people to do the work. It helps in shepherding the shepherds. 1 Peter 5 Peter says, as a fellow elder, there's that mutual shepherding that's happening. I need to be shepherded. There are multiple times in which I call Billy and I'm like, Billy, I just need a shepherd right now because I'm still one of the sheep. It also helps in development. 2, Peter 2, uh, no, 2 Timothy 2 says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy was called to develop this. One of the arguments against a plurality of pastors is that it might seem selfish. Whoa, 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 there are so many churches that need pastors, and you're just going to accumulate them all for yourself? No. We're not accumulating pastors, we're developing pastors. I'm not saying that this is what's going to happen in our church, but this is what I've seen happen so often. When a church commits to developing pastors from within, they start exporting pastors. I don't want to be a church that's importing pastors. Oh, we have a need, let's put out a job description and see who we can bring in. That's okay, I'm an import. It's okay for us to do that. But more than that, I want to export. I want to develop them. 
That's what happens when we plant churches. How amazing would it be if we had pastors here who had been developed so that further down the line, if God gave us the opportunity to plant a church, we already had someone ready, established, trained that we could put there. It helps in that development. So that, those are some of the reasons of moving towards this plurality. And it is something that we as a church, that I, I want to lead us in that direction. Of getting to the point where we can develop and bring more pastors along. And we'll talk more about how that will look practically more in members meetings. But it's something that the congregation needs to understand the model. The congregation needs to understand what this is because the congregation has authority. So now that we've talked about those things, we've, talked, we've defined the role, we've, we've described the different responsibilities, described the reasons, or demonstrated the reasons, now let's describe the relationship between elders and members. One of the different ways in which you, we see pastors, pastor, the two different uh, primary models, one is elder rule, the other is elder led. The differences between them in elder rule is that the pastors make 90% of the decisions. Any decision as far as the congregation is going to go, if, whether it's buying property, whether it's the, uh, our budget, whether it's oh, any decision, it's really elder rule. There are very few elements that come to the congregation. And there's evidence of people pointing to Hebrews 13, you know, submit to your leaders. The other view, though, is elder-led. It's that the elders will lead the, the direction in those decisions, but ultimately the responsibility, the authority, lies with the congregation. Our church is the second. We are not elder-ruled. We are elder-led. We are congregationally ruled. Ultimately, the things that I'm presenting, the direction we want to go, need to be decided by the congregation. That responsibility lies on you. That's why we're teaching about this, why we're preaching about this. I am under the authority of this body. I have a responsibility to this body. This body could decide to remove me. And I need to trust that God has called this body as his body of Christ and given them wisdom in that. I also need to teach and prepare them. But one of the elements of the relationship between pastors and elders is that ch the church submits to and respects its leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Hebrews 13, 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is the relationship that we have. There is a mutual submission here. That there is a respecting and also a submission, and quite frankly, our church does this very well. We have good examples. There are times where we have presented or gone a direction that people in our church have not agreed with or had difficulties with. And so often what is so wonderful is that they have come to me individually. They've said, hey, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. I want to challenge you. I want to ask some questions. And yet they have submitted publicly. They have chosen to respect that. And that is a beautiful picture of the, of the Bible, of the unity. And there have also been times where people have come and done that to me and I've said, you're right. 
I should not have done that. I should change. You're right. I should do this differently. The church also provides for its leaders. In 1 Corinthians 9, we see that, um, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Again, our church does this well. They provide for myself. They provide for Billy. The church keeps its elders accountable. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Acts 17, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The church reviews what the pastor says. They check it. They also, the church also rebukes the pastor when necessary. 1 Timothy 5.19, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. The church also sometimes has to remove people. Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's a responsibility of the congregation. Remove someone. If there is ever a time in which I preach something that is different from the word of God, remove me. The church must be protected. So, worship team can be coming up. This role of, of pastors and elders is an important one. When we're talking about the, the congregation, when we're talking about what is the church, we also need to talk about who leads the church. Ultimately, it's Christ. But under Christ, we have under-shepherds. And those, those shepherds have a specific role. Those shepherds have a specific responsibility. The structure of those shepherds matters. And it is those things that determines the relationship between the pastor and the sheep. I want to say thank you because our church is too, does this so well. Both Pastor Billy and I love being pastors here. This was not a message where I'm like, oh, we need to change all of these things. At the same time, we want to expand this. We want to bring others along so that we can do this better. All for the grace, by the grace of God and for his glory.